How many of you ever heard of James Pennington before? Where? Sorry? Ah, wonderful. Wunderbar. <laughs> well, um, we'll get to that, maybe. Uh, I, I will tell you honestly, I'd never heard of James Pennington until about six or eight years ago when I was working on this book on American saints and came across him. Find 365 significant American Christians. You know, you probably don't have immediate recall of that many names. And I certainly didn't. So we were scrounging, looking around, and we, we found this name. And as I was just explaining, I went to an author's agent. Pennington wrote the story of his escape from slavery. It's called The Fugitive Blacksmith, and you'll find it online if you're interested. And I thought this should be republished. It should be updated. It should be made more accessible. It's a little bit 19th century in its prose. And it should be out there for teenagers to read because James Pennington, at the age of 19, was illiterate and had never heard of Jesus. He was a slave in Hagerstown, Maryland, and at that age he decided he had been beaten once too often, and it was just enough. He was out of there. He hated leaving his family behind. He was lucky to have an intact family. Most slaves didn't, but he did. And he, but he decided, if I don't do it now, I never will. I'll be married myself. I'll have children. I won't want to leave. I've got to go. I can't be a slave any longer. And so on a Sunday afternoon, he tucked a loaf of bread in his pocket and set off. He thought he knew the North Star. He knew that to the North was freedom. How far, he didn't know. It could have been a thousand miles. But he thought, I'm young, I'm strong, whatever, I'll, I'll make it. It's actually six miles from Hagerstown to the Mason-Dixon line. But he didn't know that, and somehow he got going in the wrong direction. And almost a week later, was captured by slave hunters who were on the lookout for wandering fugitive slaves down near Reisterstown, Maryland. It's near Baltimore. He'd been going southeast. He tricked his captors, got away again, and then he did get into Pennsylvania. Somehow he got going in the right direction. And on a Monday morning, eight days after he escaped from slavery, he found himself, he didn't know where he was, but he saw a toll booth in the distance. Now don't picture the Merritt Parkway or the interstate or something. I'm talking a wooden shack alongside a dirt road where they collected tolls to pay for the maintenance of dirt roads. He went to the toll booth where there was a woman and he said, I'm looking for work. Well, he said, where, where am I? She said, you're in Pennsylvania. He said, I'm looking for work. She said, well, if, if you go, you'll find a house. She gave him directions. You'll find William Wright. He's a Quaker. He'll help you. So Pennington followed her directions. And it's now Monday morning. He's been going for eight days. He's had a half a loaf of bread, some green apples that upset his stomach. And his captors gave him a light meal a couple days earlier for a week. He was ragged, he was hungry, he's tired, he'd been running mostly at night through thorns and swamps. He knocks on the door, and William Wright opened it, and behind him he could see a table set with a full country breakfast. He said, I'm looking for work. And William Wright, and this is, this is the hooker as far as I'm concerned, William Wright said, well, come in then and take thy breakfast, and we will talk about it. Thee must be cold without any coat. And Pennington said, My condition was wretched as that of any human being can possibly be, with the exception of loss of health or reason. I had but four pieces of clothing about my person, having left all the rest in the hands of my captors. 
I was a starving fugitive without home or friends, a reward offered for my person in the public papers, pursued by cruel manhunters, and no claim upon him to whose door I went. Had he turned me away, I must have perished. Nay, he took me in and gave me of his food and shared with me his own garments. Such treatment I had never before received at the hands of any white man. I read that and I had to write the book. <laughs> it's, it's, so he came in, they had breakfast, and Wright found work for him to do and began to teach him. He said, um, dost thou know thy alphabet? And Pennington had tried to learn. He'd been working in a blacksmith's shop, and the blacksmith had kept records. Somebody would come in with a piece of work to do, and he'd put down what it was and when it was to be done and so on. And when he was out of the shop, Pennington would go and look at the book and try to see what those marks meant. And he had no place to start. You know, there was no Rosetta Stone that could give him the key. But he learned how to copy some of the letters. There were about five that he could make, and he showed William Wright what he could do. And Phoebe Wright, looking over his shoulder, said, why, these are better than I can do. But Wright had been a school teacher. He was happy to have a pupil. He found work for Pennington to do. His, his slave name, by the way, was James Pembroke. And he assumed the name James Pennington when he went to work for Wright. Slave catchers were out there. There was a reward being offered for James Pembroke. He had to change his name, and he did. So um, over the next six months, Wright gave him a, a grounding in the alphabet, learning to read, some introduction to the Bible, to astronomy. Why astronomy, I don't know, but Wright was interested in it, and he made um, Pennington interested in it. But he was too close to the border, and slave hunters were coming by all the time, and then he'd have to hide, and it just made him very nervous. And he finally persuaded Wright that he had to move on, and Wright sent him to another Quaker family near Philadelphia, and he, he spent six months there. And one of the fascinating things is that the, the, the people who were hosting him were Quaker preachers, and they were traveling a good deal. And they'd, be, they'd leave the farm in Pennington's care when they were gone, and Pennington, if he had some spare time, would go into the barn and try to make a speech. Now, tell me, what is it that motivates someone in, in those circumstances to think of himself as a, as a public speaker? And what frustrated them was he had nothing to say. He'd never learned anything. He knew nothing. He wanted to speak. He wanted to say things to people, and he, he had nothing to tell them. So six months there, and he moved on again, and this time to Brooklyn, where he was taken on by a wealthy merchant in Brooklyn Heights, a man called Adrian Van Sinderen. And Van Sinderen gave him work to do. Of course, he's been a blacksmith. He knew horses. He could be a coachman for Adrian Van Sinderen. And he worked for him for several years, trying to remake himself as a free man. And in Brooklyn, there were opportunities. There were night schools. There were Sunday schools. And with the money that he made as a coachman, he could hire tutors, and he did. He hired tutors to teach him Latin, Greek. Well, he learned Greek on his own, but he, he got tutors to teach him other subjects. And I'm, I don't see a clock, and I'm nervous because I could talk for hours. <laughs> <laughs> but I was told I need to leave time for you to buy books and sign them. Okay, I got some idea of how we're doing here. I can't tell you the whole story. You have to buy the book. But at any rate, um, he escaped from slavery in 1829, and in 1830, the first 
Black Convention was called by Richard Allen, who is the founder and first bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, meet in Philadelphia to rally black people in opposition to the American Colonization Society. If you ever heard of the American Colonization Society, it was an important force in the first part of the 19th century, formed in the 18-teens, I'm, I'm not sure the actual foundation date, but through the 1820s, trying to solve America's racial problem by sending black people to Africa. We have this problem. We've got white people, we've got black people, they don't mix well and so on. How should, what do we do? Send black people back to Africa. You know, it's simple. The founders of the American Colonization Society included former presidents of the United States, Supreme Court justices, the presidents of Princeton, Harvard, Columbia, and Yale. Anybody who was anybody was a, a member of the American Colonization Society. And they raised money, and they sent ships. Liberia is over there today because of the American Colonization Society. But a lot of black people said, wait a minute, I was born here, my grandparents were born here, I had ancestors who fought in the revolution, they've died for this country, I don't know anything about Africa, why would I want to go to Africa? The convention was called in 1830 to enable black people to make a united stand in opposition to the American Colonization Society. Invitations were sent out to all the major cities and to black people, leaders in these cities. An invitation came to Brooklyn. And I'm reading between the lines, but um, Pennington got sent as a delegate. He was barely a year out of slavery. Why Pennington? Why not somebody else? Presumably the other people said, I got a job, I got a wife, I can't go now, maybe the following week, whatever. And, and Pennington had no ties. I'll go. But as he went home from the meeting, he thought, oh, wait a minute, I do have ties. I've got a job. What's going to happen if I tell Adrian Van Sinderen, who I know to be an officer of the American Colonization Society, that I would like to go to Philadelphia to take part in a meeting that is opposing the American Colonization Society? By the time he walked home, he had a plan. He got a friend of his to take over his job for a week, and he went to Philadelphia, and he took part in the convention that took a strong stand against the American Colonization Society. And he came back and went back to work. And he sent a report of the meeting to the Brooklyn Eagle, which I think still publishes. And one day as he went into the house, Adrian Van Sinderen, sitting in his library, reached behind him and took a copy of the Brooklyn Eagle off the shelf and said, James, I need to talk with you. What is this that I read? And Pennington told him. And Van Sinderen said, well, if black people are opposed to what we are doing in the colonization society, then I will resign my office. <laughs> so Pennington gambled and won. Van Sinderen went to a meeting that afternoon and resigned his position in the American Colonization Society, and Pennington still had a job. And several years later, he was walking on the street one day, and a friend said, James, do you know they're founding a school for black children? I think you should apply for the job as teacher. And he said, wait a minute. I'm still learning. I'm still a student myself. The man said, no, apply. Pennington said, I will. And he got the job. Five years out of slavery, as an illiterate man, he was hired to teach school. Zipping ahead. Ten years later, he became the first black student at Yale was ordained to the Congregational Ministry. 
Now, he was the first black student at Yale. Yale didn't know what to make of this man. He had all the qualifications. He knew his Hebrew and Greek and Latin, literate, intelligent, educated, but he was black. What do we do? We've never had a black student. They resolved their dilemma by saying, well, all right, you can come, but you must sit in the back row and not ask questions. So for at least two years, maybe three, it's not clear, Pennington sat in the back row at Yale and absorbed an education that enabled him to be ordained to the Congregational Ministry, which was, you had to be well qualified in order to get that kind of a job. He went on, and I'm, I'm going to skip lightly ahead because I want to make another kind of point. He went on from that beginning. He, he was ordained, he served a congregation in Newtown on Long Island where he had been a school teacher. He was called within a year to a congregation in Hartford who knew about him because he'd been studying in Yale. They, they knew how many educated black clergy were there in those days. This congregation in Hartford wanted them to come. He turned them down the first time. A year later they came back and they said, we really want you. But now the Amistad case was in the headlines and the Amistad prison captives were in New Haven and Hartford as their case went through the courts. And I think perhaps that intrigued Pennington enough to think, it would be interesting to be up there in Connecticut where this is happening. At any rate, he, he took the job as pastor of the Talcott Street Congregation in Hartford and served there for eight years. It was during that time that he was chosen to be a delegate to the second international convention on the abolition of slavery in, in London and consecutively a convention in London of peace societies. He'd become a pacifist, the influence of the Quakers. So Pennington got to New York to get a ship in the baggage car of the train, but he was treated equally on the ship. And he got to England, and he spent a month in England, and came back changed, because for the first time he'd been treated as a human being. He said he was very observant, but nowhere in England did he see any difference made between him and anyone else on account of color. And he came back to Connecticut, and. The next meeting of the Connecticut Clergy Association, he challenged them. Why is it that I'm invited into every pulpit in England and none in Connecticut? And for the first time, he began to challenge the system openly. You know, all very well to escape from slavery, to be educated, to serve in black ministry and so on, but to challenge the system, to say things don't have to be this way. That was in part the influence of that trip to England. He went on to be the pastor of the Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, served there for eight years, and during that period of time worked to integrate the New York City streetcar system and eventually succeeded. That's a long story I don't think I have time to tell. I want to go back and talk about the whole question of racism because we could go back to his escape from slavery you won't be able to see it very well, but lower left here. There is the ad that was published in the Hagerstown newspaper after his owner discovered he was gone. And it offers a $200 reward. That is a lot of money for 1830. That was a lot of money. I've been to Hagerstown. I've looked in the old newspapers. And the average ad, and there are a lot of them, average ad for a fugitive slave was 30 or $40. I saw, I think maybe there was another one for 100 there were no others for 200. He really wanted him back. He knew his skills, he knew his ability, and he wanted them. But the ad says 
a Negro man named James Pembroke, about 21 years of age, five feet five inches high, very black, square and clumsily made, has a down look, prominent and reddish eyes, and mumbles, or talks with his teeth closed. Mumbles, or talks with his teeth closed. He was a slave. More speculators say, you're mad at you. But given a chance to speak freely, Pennington said of himself, it cost me two years hard labor after I fled to unshackle my mind. It was three years before I had purged my language of slavery's idioms. It was four years before I had thrown off the crouching aspect of slavery. Now th think what that reflects. Two years to, to unshackle my mind, to learn how to think, to question, to reason, not to be a mere farm implement, a human machine, but to imagine and ponder and organize ideas. Three years before I had purged my language of slavery's idioms. Well, debates go on still today about the meaning and value of black English, but I think Pennington would have, would have found that irrelevant. To take a place in the world, to gain the respect of those who controlled that world, to influence others, he had to speak as they spoke, and he learned to do it. Years later, he was speaking to an audience in England, and the Gloucester Journal, in reporting this speech, told its readers in self-satisfied tones that, quote, Dr. Pennington's address was characterized by moderation and good sense, and but for his features and color, no person would have supposed him to be anything other than a very well-educated and sensible Englishman. Now, we ignore the English snobbery. What that tells us is that James Pennington had taught himself to speak in such a way as to make himself listened to, to have an influence. Let me give you an excerpt from one of his speeches made in Hartford many years later. And here is an eternal truth that is destined to beat away every refuge of lies that can be brought by the ingenuity of critics, tyrants, and cavillers to support slavery. When you have made of man a slave by a sevenfold process of selling, bartering, and chaining, and garnishing him with that rough and bloody brush, the cart whip, and set him to the full by blowing into the eyes of his mind cloud after cloud of moral darkness, his own immortality still remains. Subtract from it what you can, immortality still remains. And this is a weapon in the bosom of the slave which is more terrible and terrifying to the slaveholder than the thunder of triumphal artillery in the ears of a retreating army. Now, that's oratory. And he had learned to speak in such a way as to influence others. I've been asking other people, you know, when I went to school, I think most people still studied Latin. Any of you study Latin? Greek. Yes, yeah, yeah, well. Do you know what used to be a fairly familiar phrase, Timio Donaus et Dona Ferentes? But you know the English translation. I fear, be, I fear the Greeks even bearing gifts, right? Okay. That's um, what, what the reason I bring it up is that as time went on in the pre Civil War era, those who were abolitionists tried to get the major political parties to adopt abolition as a plank in their political platform, and they wouldn't do it. Whether they were Democrats or whether they were Whigs, 
they wanted to be a national party, and to be a national party, you had to include Southerners. So they would not take an abolitionist plank. And the abolitionists, therefore, some of them, decided, well, we're going to have to organize our own party. And they organized a party called the Liberty Party, which never got more than about 1% of the vote. And when they asked Pennington about joining the Liberty, Liberty Party, he said, politicians are politicians. It's not going to do you any good. Timio denaus et dona sequentes. He changed the last word from Timio denaus et dona ferentes. I, I fear the Greeks bearing gifts. I fear Greeks seeking gifts. I fear politicians. They're always out for themselves. <laughs> well, it, it tells you something about American society today and then that he could do that kind of thing effectively because people knew what he was talking about. And it tells you something about him that he'd gotten to a point where he could make a play on words in Latin from illiteracy at age 19. Someone described him, 1853, as I say, he, he was at the first Negro National Convention in 1830. He was at the first four Negro National Conventions. Then he was studying at Yale and he couldn't get there, but, uh, but he was always a supporter of the National Convention movement. And by 1853, he was the presiding officer at the Negro National Convention. Frederick Douglass was there, met in Rochester. But even though they were in Douglass's hometown, Douglass was there and he spoke, but it was Pennington who was chosen to preside. Now, at that convention, William Wilson, who was a Brooklyn school teacher, um, wrote columns for uh, New York newspapers, and he, he wrote about his experience there, and he wrote about James Pennington. And this is one of the few verbal descriptions we have of him. You never saw the doctor. Many others have been alike unfortunate. Let me, in a word or two, speak of him. There is something about the doctor in his quiet deportment, something in both his manner and speech, so very English, refined English, I mean, that you would hardly have supposed him to have been bred in America. Lively, I may even say jolly, in manners, agreeable, with no attempt at austerity. You feel at ease in his presence at once. So he appears in the private circle. As presiding officer of the convention, he must have made the impression upon every man capable of an impression that neither hardships nor undue severity was necessary to guide through the varied forms of business of a body of gentlemen. The doctor is with all a gentleman, a, a clergyman in the fullest sense of the word, pious, learned, able, skilled in research, deep in lore, in all things earnest, in nothing insincere. Well, uh, James Pennington. Now, let me just say a few things about the whole question of racism and go back again to the American Colonization Society and their solution to the problem of race in America as opposed to that of the Negro National Conventions. On the one hand, all the power and influence in America. On the other side, fugitive slaves and, and nobodies. But it was, in the end, the nobodies who won. Let me just read a couple of passages from the end of the book. I think maybe that's the best way to, to sum it up. There were those in America who thought the solution to America's racial dilemma was to send black people, quotes, back to Africa. But James Pennington had not come from Africa. His grandfather had been brought to the Western Hemisphere unwillingly, but Basil, James' father, and James had been born and brought up in America. This, for better or worse, was their country. Rather than return to a continent they had never known, they would prefer to reshape America to include them in its self-definition. 
In the struggle to do so, James Pennington came to realize that he was American to the backbone. He used that phrase about himself, and it was in that context. I am an American to the backbone. It was no solution to his situation to go elsewhere. He would spend a large part of his life exhorting black Americans to work to transform their country by getting the skill and education that, they would, that would enable them to play their part in the nation's life. In doing so, he would help white Americans to see the wholeness of their country and to broaden their vision of what it means to be an American. In Scotland, he was speaking at one point, and he said this, the colored population of the United States have no destiny separate from that of the nation in which they form an integral part. Our destiny is bound up with that of America. Her ship is ours, her pilot is ours, her storms are ours, her calms are ours. If she breaks upon any rock, we break with her. If we, born in America, cannot live upon the same soil, upon terms of equality with the descendants of Scotchmen, Englishmen, Irishmen, Frenchmen, Germans, Hungarians, Greeks, and Poles, then the fundamental theory of America fails and falls to the ground. Can't say it any better than that. Uh, James McCune Smith had some interesting sidelights on that same point. And, and James McCune Smith, again, is a name most people haven't heard, but they should. He was a colleague of Pennington's. He was born and brought up in New York, and he was born free. And he got the best education you could get if you were black and lived in New York in the 1820s and 30s, which was elementary school. It was an excellent elementary school for black children. And James McCune Smith went to that school and decided he wanted to be a doctor. Well, you couldn't be a doctor if you were black in America. You couldn't go to college, let alone medical school. But he was so bright and he impressed, impressed people so much that they raised the funds to send him to Edinburgh to get the best education you could get. The best medical education in that day was Edinburgh. They sent him to Edinburgh. And he graduated from Edinburgh, and then he interned in Paris. You couldn't get a better medical education than James McEwen Smith got. He came back to America, and he practiced in New York, and practiced both black and white people, consulted him. But Horace Greeley, at one point, taking up his line of, send them back to Africa, James McEwen Smith corrected Horace Greeley by suggesting that it was not, as Greeley had said, the land of our forefathers. He said, surely you mean foremothers. Because he said, where is that? Oh, darn, can't find it. Um, did we consider the number of black women who will spend tonight in the arms of a white man? And you look around and you see that, in fact, our ancestry comes from Englishmen, Irishmen, Scotchmen, Frenchmen, Germans, Asiatics, as well as to Africa, the best blood of Virginia courses through our veins. I love that line, the best blood of Virginia courses through our veins. But James McCune Smith also, and I'm trying to get around the subject of what it, feel, what it felt like to be black in America in those days. Harriet Beecher Stowe once wrote to, to James Pennington to ask him for his testimony, and I have that in the book. Uh, she'd written, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and people said, oh, it's not that bad. You're exaggerating. You're making it up. She then wrote a key to Uncle Tom's Cabin, in which she 
gave chapter and verse evidence that what she said was actually true. And she wrote to Pennington. Um, and he responded, Oh, Mrs. Smith, oh, oh, Mrs. Stowe, if only you knew. But, um, but even more dramatically, James McCune Smith once was asked to write an address to the colored people of New York State. And he responded in words that must have expressed the feelings of many others. I have not heart to write it. Each succeeding day, that terrible majority falls sadder, heavier, more crushingly on my soul. At times I am so weaned from hope that I could lay me down and die with the prayer that the very memory of this existence should be blotted from my soul. There is in that majority a hate deeper than I had imagined. Laboring under these views, I cannot write a cheering word and will not. So I think we need to hear that kind of thing. America has changed enormously since that day. It changed because of people like Smith and Pennington and others who had a vision of America larger than that of the white majority and persuaded others to see it with them. I found a statement in a newspaper called The Colored American that was published in New York in the 1820s and 30s that astounded me. It was an editorial on the importance of getting an education. It said, we must get an education because if we get an education, our children will be qualified to be president of the United States. <laughs> I thought, wow. In 1830, they saw what was possible. And I'm sure if they'd said to any white man in New York City that someday there would be a black president, they would say, no, forget it. But they saw that it was possible. They, they, they went to the founding documents of this country and they said, this is what's there. This is what potentially is there. And we can still accomplish it. Let me just wind up with a couple paragraphs toward the end of the book. Even today, for all the interest in black history, such men as James McCune Smith and James W.C. Pennington are generally unknown. They were, we might say, ahead of their time. They were visionaries who saw and longed for a day when a man like Martin Luther King could speak of their dream and his before tens of thousands, black and white, and help bring about significant change. It would take another century for that to happen. But the great moments never come without first the day of small things. And the pioneers like James W.C. Pennington who blaze a trail for others to follow. Small things, however, seems hardly a fair assessment of men who, without for the most part either votes or influence, dare to challenge the recognized people of power in their world. James Pennington was still a fugitive slave with a, with a price on his head. It is hard to imagine two more contrary visions of America than those offered by the Colonization Society and the Negro Convention. But it was the fugitive slave and his colleagues rather than the President of the United States and his colleagues who changed the terms of the debate and ultimately prevailed. So, that's the story. <laughs> and as I say, I think it's a story we need to hear. It's a story I didn't know until I started to work on it. I, um, you know, as soon as hands go up, I'll stop talking, but uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah, <clears throat> one of the interesting things about the American Colonization Society and human mm. rights mm. suggesting that you had a, a group of somebodies against a group of nobodies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and central to that was the level of participation of college presidents. Yes. Supportive of the American Colonization right. Society. Yes. 
there was virtually 95% of college presidents. Princeton, Harvard, Columbia, and Yale yes. to start with, yes. Yes, were all yep. Yep. colonizations. Right. And used their yep. um, advantage or their position mm. yep. to selectively allow blacks to enter, yeah. to be trained, yes. if they signed pledges that they would go to Africa. <laughs> yeah. And would not allow them to matriculate if they did not sign those pledges. The colonization society had the, the, this terrible split personality. On the one hand, they were saying to white people, we need to get these depraved and ignorant people out of our country. And on the other hand, they were saying, we can send them to Africa to civilize Africa. Right. <laughs> right. And so the Negro Convention movement was saying, now how are these depraved and ignorant people supposed to civilize Africa? <laughs> Pennington said at one point that um, you, know, you, you, you want us to, to send us to Africa, but the Saxon is in Africa already. They're colonizing Africa. It's too late. So, yes. Has anybody shown interest in doing a one or two person show based on him, based on the events of his life? It's, did, I, did anybody show an interest in, in doing a one or two person? Well, maybe now that the book is out. <laughs> you know, this book is officially being published day after tomorrow. So if, you, if it's slightly warm to the touch, that's why. I can't, I can't get the publisher and editor to explain to me why it is that a book that I've had in my hands for two months is not published until July 15th. But that's the official publication date. That's the bells and the whistles and so on. I don't know. <laughs> But you can be the first on your block to have a copy. Heidelberg. Yes. Heidelberg. I mean, uh, you mentioned your book. Among the many phenomenal things about James Thomas Pennington is that he was, by all accounts, the first African African American yes. to be awarded an honorary doctorate worldwide by university by a European university. Right. Yes. Here I have a copy. Of the original honorary doctor certificate from Heidelberg right. in December 1849. Yeah. And it says in that, it just gives a brief account of his own biography, you know, mm -hmm. and it uses the word Ethiopis yeah. as a kind of European um, a term describing that he's a black man. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and the, the question I wanted to ask is that what I find so fascinating about it is that he, despite mm -hmm. the many setbacks, and the, the underprivileged situation he came out of, he never actually despaired in America. He kept on believing in, in this vision. And yeah. he went to Europe and he found out that this institutionalized color line did not exist mm. in Congo. Yes. Right. And did he ever consider emigrating and leaving because of that? He considered, he considered going with the Amistad captives back to Africa, but then decided that he could be more effective in America. He, he thought about it. He certainly thought about it. But it was uh, for various reasons. He, he didn't feel that that was what he ought to be doing. But yes, he was, uh, that, that degree is a, is a fascinating story, and he was the first. Heidelberg had prided itself on its reputation for being the most liberal, I think, European university. They, uh, who was the, um, I'm not sure if he was a member of the faculty there, uh, a Jewish. Hmm? Uh, you mean the, the they're, they're, professor who, uh, No, 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 I, I know that name, but 
there, there was a, a Jew that was either hired or given a degree by Heidelberg, and it was the first time European University had done that. So they, you know, they, they had a reputation, and they were interested in furthering it. So um, Pennington was um, fit, fit their scheme. He, he was, and, and on both sides it was a symbolic thing. Pennington said, this is not for me, but it's for the black people of America. It is recognition of what they can achieve. And for Heidelberg, it was the same thing. It was, uh, he was the token, the symbol of um, what they wanted to, to say to the rest of Europe. So, um, yeah, again, I'm, I'm not looking at my clock anymore, but how are we doing? Do we have more time for questions? Um, go ahead. There, there is another side to Pennington that is not often spoken of. Mm -hmm. um, and it comes out in his participation in the Congregational and Presbyterian Conventions yes. of 1856, 1857. Right. Yes. There were two or three years. Mm -hmm. And he is drinking. Well, there's a question about that. Yes. There's a real question. I deal with that in the book. Yes, I agree. Um, there were certainly people that said he was drinking. Whether he was and to what degree, I can't tell, and I don't think anybody can tell at this point. Because if you drank at all, you were, con you were considered an alcoholic. He had been a member of Prohibition societies right. earlier in his life. And the idea that he was an alcoholic was spread by Lewis Tappan and I forget who the other man was, who, who, both of whom at that point were on the outs with Pennington. Now, and, Tappan was white now. So he yes, yeah. right. As well, I was sure, Lewis or Arthur? Lewis. Lewis. Yeah. Okay. Arthur was more involved early. Right. But Arthur died relatively young, and yeah. it was Lewis that carried on and um, hired black people, but never for anything more than a porter. It never occurred to him that you could train a black person to take a higher position in his company. That was the kind of problem that you know people had in New York in those days. That Even here's this well-meaning man, Lewis Tappan, who would invite a black person to sit with him in church once. But then it caused such a rift in the congregation, he went off and founded his own church rather than do it again. And um, as I say, hired black people, but only for menial positions. So uh, Tappan was annoyed with Pennington because after his first trip to England, rumors were being spread that he'd been given an honorary doctorate by the University of Surrey. There is no University of Surrey. But Tappan had, you know, th Tappan was thrilled by this idea that a black person's got this honorary doctorate, and he told his friends, and it turned out to be not true. And he tried to get Pennington to tell him how he'd made that mistake. Well, who knows how Tappan made the mistake? Tappan made the mistake, and he tried to get Pennington somehow to take the blame for it. Uh, but you there were other black abolitionists who also made claim of his drinking, not just Tappan. No, it wasn't oh. just Tappan. There were black people, but yeah. whether they were friends of Pennington's a question. Um, you know, I, th I think that's an open question. The, the you know, he, he resigned as pastor of the Shiloh Church because of a controversy. Charges were brought to the presbytery. Nobody knows why, because it's never stated. In the presbytery records, there are charges of adultery and alcoholism, all kinds of things, brought against various people, but never against Pennington. There's never a cause stated. And I think it was simply, well, there were a lot of things. One, that was that he'd been away a long time. Mm 
You know, they elected him as, they chose him as their pastor. Next thing they know, he's off in Europe. And he stayed there for over two years. Well, where's our pastor? Well, our pastor's a fugitive slave, and he doesn't dare come back until his freedom was, secu was secured by John Hooker. Then he could come back. But it meant that of the first three years he was pastor of the church, he was absent for two of them. Well, that doesn't build your very strong base of, you know, pastoral leadership. Um, his relationship with Garnett, who also pastored. Yes, family, yes. What was the nature of that? Well, that was at first a very close relationship. When, um, okay, we're running out of time. When Pennington was in Hartford, he would go and spend a week with Garnett in Albany. But um, toward the end of his life, Garnett refers to Pennington as that unfortunate old Negro. Uh, they they were on the outs, and uh, Garnet was a much more volatile character. Pennington stuck to it yeah. and stayed with something. And the question that was raised, and I wanted to get back to it, Pennington learned at Yale to talk about the moral providence of God, and it ties in for me with with Martin Luther King's phrase about the arc of justice. Mm -hmm. That Pennington had this deep-seated belief that God shaped events. We can, we can play a role, but God shapes events, and God's providence, God's moral providence will get us where we want to be. He had that deep underlying confidence that God would make it all come right. I think that's how it was possible for him to stick with it, as he did. We can have more time for questions during the book signing. Yeah, um, okay. so we're kind of out of time now. So <laughs> yeah. um, thank you very much, all of you, for coming.